Good morning to everyone, and happy Father's Day. It's great to see you today, and uh, we are, as we have been saying throughout this service, so grateful for all of our dads. And I need to let you know ahead of time, I'm not preaching a Father's Day message today, but I have been a pastor long enough uh, to know that a lot of the dads will hear that and say, amen. I have noticed over the years that many times um, it's like mom's. They want Father's Day sermons way more than dads. So uh, you're welcome, dads, today. Uh, my gift to you, uh, and you can enjoy your breakfast burritos after the service. Uh, but what we are doing today is we're continuing our study in Romans, and I think it's providential uh, that we come to this passage today that while it is not about dads, it, it shows us the enormous impact that a man's choices can have, whether they're wrong or they're right. We are studying Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, and so you'll want to get uh, your Bibles open or turned on uh, to that passage, and we're going to begin by hearing together the Word of of God. Paul writes, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Do you ever wonder why the world is so messed up? You ever ask yourself that question? I mean, why are people the way they are? I mean, what is wrong with everybody, right? Why is everyone so selfish? Why is it that we so often condemn others for the things we do ourselves? And why do we so often violate our own standards for what's right or what's wrong? Why is guilt the most universal human experience? I mean, we, we all know the things that we should have done but we don't do and the things that we have done that we shouldn't have done. Why have we never been able to educate evil out of the human heart? Why have we never been able to govern evil out of the human heart? 
Why haven't we been able to punish sin out of the human heart or, or cancel sin out of the human heart? Why is it so easy to do bad things and so hard to do good things? Why is it so easy to fall into sexual sin and so hard to remain pure? Why does wealth almost always lead to selfishness? Why does power almost always lead to corruption? Why is it with all of our 21st century technological advances that we just seem to be angrier and lonelier and more violent and more abusive? And why is it that already in infancy we can look at little children and see clearly the selfishness and envy and pride of human beings beginning to appear? I ask all these questions because we actually find answers to all of them in our passage today, Romans 5, 12 through 21, because in these verses, Paul is giving us the true story of the whole world. Paul is teaching us in these verses so much about why the world is the way that it is. Michael Byrd is an Australian scholar. He's written a commentary on Romans. He calls these verses a tale of two Adams, because they focus on two people, Adam and Jesus. Maybe this will help some of you think about what Paul is writing here. How many of you are Star Wars fans? Uh, Some of you are, some of you aren't. But some people, you may know this, have called Star Wars the tale of two Skywalkers. Because Anakin, the first Skywalker, gave in to the temptation to embrace the dark side. And when he did, he brought chaos and destruction and death to the entire galaxy. Luke, second Skywalker, he faced the same temptation, but he stayed obedient to the Jedi way. And because of that, he reversed the curse that came from the disobedience of the first Skywalker. He was even able eventually to redeem him. George Lucas himself said that the central theme of episodes four through six was the redemption of Anakin, the first Skywalker, by Luke, the second. And there's a sense in which that is exactly what we see in Romans 5, 12 to 21. The whole storyline of the Bible is essentially about the redemption of the first Adam by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, as we get into this passage, I think you need to know ahead of time that it is one of the most difficult passages in all of Romans. It's packed with a lot of unfamiliar uh, concepts. Uh, Paul's reasoning is, is fairly complex. But you also need to know that there is incredible, life-changing truth in these verses. And they're, they're just filled when you get them with hope and with joy. What's happening here? It's almost like Paul is making this shift where he's, he's changing lenses in the flow of his thought. The last time we were studying Romans, when we did the first half of Romans 5, he was kind of zooming in, coming in close, looking at all of the very personal blessings of salvation that come to all of us. We saw that uh, a few weeks ago. But now Paul's stepping back. He's switching to, you might call a wide-angle lens. He's putting our personal story within the big story. These are cosmic verses that are, have truths that are as wide and as deep as the entire universe. Paul is going to explain for us how we got to where we find ourselves today. But most importantly, he's going to tell us why we do not have to stay there. 
So I'm going to walk through uh, these 10 verses with you, and we're going to do that by using three uh, words to guide us, three words that help us see and understand the the true story of the whole world. Uh, Three words to help you remember. They all start with R. Here's the first word. It's the word rebellion. Rebellion. Sin and death entered the world through one man. That's what we we see in verses 12 through 14. Again, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world uh, through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, See, what Paul is basically teaching us is this. Adam, the first human that God created, rebelled against God's clear command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result of that choice, sin entered the world. As a result of sin entering the world, death entered the world. And as a result of that, all people everywhere died. Now, maybe we we understand that, but I want you to not miss this. Paul is teaching that even though you and I, we, we never stood in front of that tree, we never ate that tree's fruit, God sees Adam's choice as our choice. In other words, Adam is our representative. His sin becomes our sin. We all sinned in Adam. And Paul isn't telling us in this that we all die because we sin like Adam. He's saying we die because we all sinned in Adam. When he sinned, we also sinned. Now, if you're listening to this and you're processing and thinking about it, you might find your heart kind of protesting, that's not fair. I mean, how can God hold me responsible for something I didn't even do? And that is a natural response. I mean, just think of the cosmic impact of Adam's choice. I mean, one choice and death entered creation and death spread to all people. And that means that every natural disaster, every disease, every cancer, every child born with a defect, every murder, every rape, every divorce, every act of anger and abuse, even hell itself. It all traces back to that choice. And we weren't there, right? None of us was there for that. So how could that be fair? Well, the first thing we need to keep in mind if we're going to understand this is this truth. What Adam did was not just the breaking of a rule. We can't look at Adam's story and say, come on, man. I mean, all he did was eat some fruit. I mean, what's the big deal? Not, that's not all. What Adam did was he started a revolution. His fundamental sin, the Bible teaches, was idolatry, which is the sin of wanting to be like God. It's what the scholar D.A. Carson calls the, the de-godding of God. You remember the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? The first commandment is that we are to worship God alone. Or as Jesus puts it in the gospel, we are to love God. See, Adam's sin was a failure to love God. And that's why it was so cosmic. That's why the effects are are so devastating. Adam was supposed to rule the world for God, to subdue creation. But when he sinned, he suffered alienation, he suffered corruption, he suffered death, and, and Adam has passed all of that on to all of us. So we we tend to try 
to reduce sin to rule breaking, right? We want to ask the question, well, what rule did I break? What did I do that I shouldn't have done? That sort of thing. But sin is far more than that. Sin is always ultimately relational breaking. It's relationship breaking. God is the giver of life. And when you cut yourself off from God, you're cutting yourself off from the one who is life. You cut yourself off from life, you die. And that's what sin is. That's what sin does. You see, if you look at this verse, Adam started a a three-step chain reaction. His rebellion, first of all, brought sin into the world. And then second, death followed sin as the consequence of sin. And then third, death spread to all people uh, because all sinned. Now, maybe you're processing, maybe you're still stuck, you're still asking how all of this could be fair. Maybe you can think about it like this. Theologians tell us that Adam is the federal head of the human race. This is the theological way that theologians have chosen to say that Adam is our representative. And the the Latin root, root for the word federal is related to the idea of covenant, and it shows us that God sees humanity in solidarity, not just individualistically. And if we have solidarity, then a representative can represent us, can act on our behalf. Now, some of us are from Eastern cultures, and Eastern cultures tend to to get this better than Western. But even in our culture, so individualistic, we still have this concept. For example, if you're in a union, then you have a union rep who negotiates for the union, like on your behalf. We're all citizens, and so we, we vote and we give power to elected representatives, and they make decisions on our behalf, right? Attorneys, they have clients, and attorneys have power of attorney to act on, attorney to act on behalf of their, uh, of their clients. And so you say, okay, well, that makes sense. I get that, but I can vote for And I can choose my representatives. I didn't vote for Adam. But I want you to listen. God did. God chose Adam. And not only that, we can say, looking at the Bible, God created Adam to be our representative. God perfectly designed Adam to act precisely the way that you would have acted in that same situation. And so if you find yourself thinking, I I think I would have done a better job, then you are claiming that you would have been a better representative than what God chose. You see, in calling Adam our representative, God is saying that what Adam chose is what we all would have chosen had we been there uh, giving that same uh, opportunity, facing that same choice. We cannot say, if I had been there, I would have done the right thing. That, that would be claiming that you know more than God, right? Do you really want to try that one? You really want to go down that path? I hope not. I mean, it is clear. God knew that all of us, given the same temptation, uh, would have done the same thing Adam did. And let's just be honest about this, okay? You can't keep a bag of Oreos in your house. So, really, how, how well do you think you would have done? You think you wouldn't have fallen to that temptation to eat of a tree that was promising you godlike knowledge? You say, but, but still, I didn't make the choice. So, it doesn't 
seem right to hold me accountable for something I, I didn't choose. And I, I get that. I understand the logic of that. But here's the reality. Have you not ratified that choice in your life? Have you not done exactly what Adam did? And you've done it thousands of times. Probably, probably uh, most of us since you got up this morning. Amen? See, we all do it. We all say, I know better than God. Do you realize every time you get angry with God because he didn't do what you thought he should have done, that you're saying, I know better than God? We've all done this. We've all done this thing where we say, I'd rather do what I want to do than what God wants me to do. I know what God wants me to do. I'm not going to do it. We've all ratified his choice. I mean, how many times in your life have you known the right thing to do and you did the opposite? And, and why, why do we so often just take a secret delight in doing what's wrong? 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine told a story that came from his teenage years. Uh, one night, the, the group of teenagers, uh, boys that he ran with, they were walking home and they noticed on his neighbor's property a tree that was just loaded down with pears. And they decided they were going to steal them. And Augustine said they stole bushels of, of these pears. And he said, looking back on it, he said, we weren't even hungry. He said, actually, the pears didn't even look that good. They ended up taking the pears they had stolen and just feeding them to hogs. Why did they steal them? Well, looking back, Augustine said, I did it. Because I loved to do what was evil. He said, my soul delighted in the wrong. Can't you look at your life and see times when you did something or you said something and you did it or said it simply because it was wrong? We've all been there. And again, even if you you've had a, have a hard time you know, grasping this concept that we've all sinned in Adam, that we're all just born with this sin nature that's bent towards doing sin, you'll have to admit we have all ratified Adam's choice in our lives, and we've done that thousands and thousands of times. And all God's people said, we know it's true. We know it's true. At the end of verse 12, Paul says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he's talking here about spiritual death. And spiritual death always manifests in physical death. British author G.K. Chesterton once quipped that original sin is the only doctrine that is empirically verifiable. In other words, we see the results of it every day. In other words, we know it's true because everyone dies. Nice people die just as much as evil people, rich people as much as poor people, educated and uneducated people, innocent babies die, as well as adults who live very long lives. Since this is Father's Day, may I point out what parents see every day when their kids are growing up, right? I mean, let's be honest, parents, didn't your kids like come out of the womb like the seagulls in Finding Nemo? You know what I'm talking about? Screaming, mine, 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 right? You did not have to teach them that, did you? Right? You, you did not send any of your kids to sin camp one summer, right? So they could learn how to sin. 
They just knew how to do it, right? Kids are born thinking about themselves. My wife, Dana, and I, we have four kids. Not one of our kids ever had to read a book growing up on how to be selfish. They were born that way. They inherited it straight from their mother. (laughs) Pastor uh, Tony Morita writes that uh, people can't get away from the doctrine of sin even when they try to deny it. There's a child psychologist named Burton White. Uh, He wrote a book a few years ago, became a bestseller. It was called The New First Three Years of Life. It's based on decades of empirical research on children. Listen to what he writes. He says, from 15 to 16 months on, as his self-awareness becomes more substantial, something in his nature we don't fully understand will lead him to deliberately try each of these forbidden activities, uh, specifically to see what will be allowed and what won't. In other words, he will begin systematically to challenge the authority of the adult he lives with. Resistance to simple requests become very common at this time. And if there is more than one child around, this can be a low point in the parenting experience. Uh, It's kind of funny to read that. Something in his nature we don't fully understand Well, we do fully understand it because God has revealed it to us in his word. We are all children of Adam. That's why we experience these low points. We're rebels. We sin. The whole human race is in rebellion. And that is true whether we know God's commands or not. Look at what Paul writes in verse 13. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So Paul is saying, without the law, you you may not know precisely which commandments you're breaking, but sin is still in the world. And he says the proof of that is that there's death. People die. Verse 14 says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Death reigned. Now, so far in this passage, it's pretty much been all bad news, right? But I want to point out, we see some good news starting to arrive. It's kind of like the the sun is beginning to rise at the dawn in that last phrase of verse 14. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And a type is a person or a place or an event that points forward to something else. And what Paul is about to show us is that this, this concept... This concept of being represented by someone else is actually also amazing news because it opens up the way out of our rebellion. See, Paul is suggesting this. If the whole world was brought under the power of sin and death by one man, what if salvation could come into the world and to the world through one man? That's the second word we see today. It's the word redemption. These next verses, uh, Paul is telling us how Jesus' power breaks the power of sin and death that Adam's sin brought into the world. And he's he's going to show us in these verses how uh, Jesus reverses the curse that Adam's sin brought into the world. And the way he does this is by doing some comparing and contrasting. I want you to notice uh, two of the contrasts. And and as we do this, I, I don't want you to think of Adam and Jesus kind of being parallel on the same level. 
What Paul is telling us is that Jesus is infinitely superior. There's these phrases like much more that we see as we look at these contrasts. The first contrast we see is in verse 15 where Paul contrasts the motivation that was at the heart of what Adam did and what Jesus did. Paul calls Adam's act a trespass. You see that? A trespass is a common sin. If you have a child, you understand this. is when you, you draw a line and you say, don't cross the line, and that person steps over the line. That's a trespass. That's what Adam did. But by contrast, Jesus' act is the free gift. In other words, the first Adam rebelled against God and selfishly ate from a forbidden tree, bringing a curse on earth. But the second Adam, Jesus, obeyed God and sacrificially gave his life up on a tree, taking the curse into himself. That's a contrast. That's a difference in the motivation. The second contrast is in the area of results. Uh, the results of, of what Adam and what Jesus did. And there's actually three separate results that Paul points out. First, we see in verse 15 where, where Paul says that Adam's act resulted in death. By contrast, Jesus' act resulted in life. Jesus' act reverses the effects of Adam's act. The second result is in verse 16. Adam's act resulted in condemnation. But... Paul says Jesus' act resulted in justification. And again, we see Jesus reverses what Adam did. In Adam, we were condemned. We were under God's wrath. But in Jesus, now we are justified. We have been made righteous through Jesus. Given Jesus' righteousness, we have that now. That's a different result. And then in verse 17, the third result is that Adam's act leads to death reigning. But because of Jesus, notice this, it says we reign in life. You see, when we were in Adam, death reigned over us. We were enslaved. And that's what we're being told here. But now Jesus has set us free. And it's even better than that. In Jesus' kingdom... It's not just that life reigns in contrast to death. Did you see what Paul says? Paul says we reign in life. We reign. It's this total contrast. Uh, let me help you kind of see a big picture. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle John does kind of a similar thing to what Paul is doing here. He does this compare and contrast thing like Paul is doing, but he, he does it in narrative form. And it's easy to miss it because it's kind of subtle. But when you see the pattern, when you get what's going on, it's one of the most beautiful things in all the gospel of John. What he's essentially doing is this. John is retelling the cre creation story, what happened with Adam, through the story of Jesus. Now, if you've read the gospel, you've probably noticed the first time that this happens because it's right at the very beginning, first verse of, of John 1, you see the apostle connecting Jesus' story back to the creation story in Genesis 1. Remember the words in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. It's obvious that he's talking about Genesis 1, right? Where it says in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now notice what's happening here in Genesis 1. How does God create? Well, he creates by means of his word, right? 
In Genesis 1, God's word comes into a world that is formless and void, and it brings beauty and order out of chaos. In John chapter 1, Jesus is launching a ministry where as the word of God, he brings beauty and order into lives that are spiritually dark, dead, filled with chaos. John is going to write in his gospel that Jesus, he dies on the sixth day of the week, on Friday. Do you understand that was the day that God created man? John is showing us that that Jesus is suffering the death penalty of the first creation, the death that came through sin. John writes that when Jesus died, do you remember this? They placed a crown of thorns on his head. Do you remember that back in the Garden of Eden, thorns were the result of the curse? John is telling us that Jesus is literally taking the curse of sin on his own head for us. John then writes that Jesus was raised on Sunday, which is the first day of the new week. And that shows us that he is beginning a whole new week of creation. In other words, it tells us the new creation has come in Jesus. And then after this, the first person that John uh, tells us about Jesus encountering after he had raised from the dead is Mary. Do you remember where he encounters her? He, 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 he meets her in the garden. And if you go back to Genesis, you see that the garden was the last place that mankind was together with God before their sin exiled them from God. Do you remember how after they sinned, Adam and Eve were hiding from God? Say on Easter Sunday morning, it's like Jesus is showing up in the garden. And Mary can't even recognize him because she's been, she's been weeping. And John is telling us that Jesus approaches her and he says to her, I found you. You've been hiding, but I found you. I came back to where you left. I am rejoining myself to you. I'm bringing you back. And then I think maybe the best part of John's gospel comes right at the end when Jesus first encounters his disciples. John writes that Jesus walks up to them and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Have you ever read that and it seemed a little weird? Like, why is he breathing on them? You know, it's like a first century greeting of some kind. Hello. (sighs) Like, what's what's going on here? But here's what's happening. John is saying that just like God breathed into the first man, Adam, and made him a living soul, Jesus is now saying, I am coming with the Holy Spirit, breathing life into spiritually dead people, making them alive through my Holy Spirit. And you see, all of that, all that that first Adam had destroyed with his sin, The second Adam is now restoring with his death and his resurrection. Friends, do you see? That's the gospel. That's the beauty of what Paul is telling us here in these verses we're looking at today. We were condemned through the rebellion of a representative who did what any of us would have done. But now we are saved through a representative who did what none of us could have done. God's redemption through Jesus, which reverses the curse, is so rich and so free. It is like ever flowing to anyone who will receive it. That's what Paul says in verse 17. It's just grace. Grace. Did you notice, looking at verses 15 to 17, the recurring, uh, recurrence of 
the words free gift and grace. If you went back and looked at them and counted them, you find they occur eight different times in those three verses. Uh, Paul actually, in the Greek text, uses four different words. They're slightly different words, you know, synonyms, uh, to translate those two different uh, phrases and words. He's just piling it on. He, he says much more twice. He says this grace abounded. He talks about the abundance of grace. In other words, this is grace on top of grace on top of grace. More grace and more grace and more grace. This is redemption. Look at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And he's highlighting again the the richness of this grace. Just one act of rebellion led to all the sin and brokenness and chaos and death in our world. Untold millions of acts of evil toward God and toward other people. But just one act of obedience reversed all that. One act of obedience by Jesus leads to redemption, righteousness, restoration. See, what Paul is trying to get us to see in this passage is that there are two family lines. And we're part, every one of us, of one of them. One from Adam, one from Jesus. And Paul is trying to get us to see that every one of us has to choose. We're either on team Adam or team Jesus, one or the other. Again, if you go back to these verses and look for this word one, just that little word one, it occurs 12 times in these verses. And the idea of this word is to have union or or to have oneness with. We We either have oneness with or we have union with Adam in his sin and condemnation or death. Or we have oneness with Jesus in his obedience and justification, and life, the eternal life that flows from the righteousness that the Father gives to everyone who believes in his Son. And again, I want to ask you, what team are you on? Which team are you? You may still say, I don't like it. I I don't like it that I got included in Adam's choice. Okay, what are you going to do about it now? You have a choice now to reverse that. You You can reverse that choice And so what are you going to do? That leads us to the third word, the final word, and that is the word reign. Grace reigns in righteousness to eternal life. We see this in the last two verses of this chapter. These two verses are kind of like the crescendo or the climax of all that Paul is saying. Adam's rebellion brought sin and death, but Jesus' redemption brings righteousness and eternal life. And now as God's children, we get to reign as kings forever with him. This is what Paul says, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Maybe you're wondering sometimes in Romans, why does Paul keep bringing the law up again and again and again? And he's doing it, as we've mentioned, because Paul is writing to this church uh, that is filled with both Jews and Gentiles. And so he needs to address these questions that people have about the role of the law. And Paul tells us here 
that the law was never given to make us right with God. The law was never given to make us do the right thing. He's going to talk more about this when we get to Romans chapter 7. He wants us to see the law was never given to save us. He says the law was just given to show us how sinful we are. That's why. See, Paul knows and Paul tells these people our hearts were sinful before the law. That's what verse 13 said. The law just came and revealed how sinful our hearts were by giving us more rules that we would never keep. Does that make sense? All the law could ever do is condemn us. But good news, Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's so important for you personally. Because no matter how dark or evil your sin may have been or may be, God's grace is always greater. This word abounded, the Greek word's almost impossible uh, to translate in just an, uh, one English word. It has a prefix in Greek, it's pronounced huper, and that has kind of morphed over the centuries to our word super, uh, about the same meaning. So you might say super abounded or something like that. But what it is telling us and what it is showing us is just this picture of grace unending, grace overflowing, grace that knows no bounds. I'm trying to think of a picture of this in this week. My, my thoughts went to the, the record rains and snows that we received in California this year. I, I decided to go to the, the fount of all wisdom, and so I, I asked the Google, um, how much water was in the Sierra snowpack? And the Google said 30 million acre-feet of water. I don't even know how to think about that. I don't even know what that means. All I know is that it is so much, they cannot contain it through the usual means of dams and reservoirs and aqueducts and pipelines and tunnels, right? It's overflowing everywhere. There is so much water and it is still coming, right? It is still coming. It is still melting. So much water that something has happened that only happens like a couple times a century in the last century. Tulare Lake. Have you heard about this? This lake has appeared in the middle of the Central Valley, about 150 miles south of us, in the middle of cotton fields and pistachio orchards. Tulare Lake surface now covers 180 square miles. If you want a reference point, that's about the same surface coverage as Lake Tahoe. It's that big. And it is estimated that this lake is going to continue to grow in the next month uh, to probably about 200 miles as the snows continue to melt. So much water, water abounding, water super abounding. I'm thinking that is just a small picture of the grace of God. And it's the story, the true story of the whole world. Rebellion brought sin into the world. Rebellion ruined the world. But God sent his only son to rescue and to redeem the world. And when we receive his grace, he restores us. And we can reign with Jesus. 
So I want to leave you with this. Sin's reign makes us slaves, but Jesus' reign makes us kings. Paul is telling us that. Verse 21, grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you look at all of this, when you sum it all up, it is simply saying this. God has already provided everything necessary for everyone, the whole human race, to be saved. You see, there is only one race of people, the sons and the daughters of Adam, and we all have only one ultimate problem, and that is the problem of sin. But God sent a second Adam to defeat sin and death, to redeem us from that death. And that second Adam that God sent, his son Jesus, has the power and the life necessary to save all of the sons and the daughters of Adam and Eve. Have you chosen to follow the second Adam? See, you didn't get to choose about whether or not you'd be born into the first Adam, but you have to choose to be born again to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus the Savior of the world, and you can choose. You can choose to receive grace and to reign in him. Jesus' grace, friends, is greater than Adam's sin. It's greater than Adam's sin. Jesus' grace, and some of you need to hear this today. Maybe you're not so sure about this. Maybe you don't believe this is true, but I'm telling you it is. Jesus' grace is greater than your sin. And it does not matter how much you've sinned. It does not matter how long you've been sinning. It does not matter, you know, how you have sinned. Your sin may be great, but God's grace is greater. It's greater. This is God's word. This is God's message. It's his message to you today. He's brought you here to hear this today. It is the word of the Lord. It's the word for us, Southwinds. Will you say amen? Let's bow our heads as we pray together. As your heads are bowed, I just want to ask this. If you are uh, not a Christ follower, what are you going to do about death? How are you going to beat death? Do you have a plan? (laughs) See, if you come to Jesus, he defeats the death that enslaves you. He gives you eternal life. And, And more than that, in him you get true life now, abundant life now, Jesus makes you alive with him. And this isn't about you cleaning yourself up. It's not about you obeying a new set of rules. If you are right now in Adam, then right now you can repent of your sins and you can trust in Jesus' death for his righteousness and you can be in Jesus and he will change your life and it's all by grace. Father, What grace you have lavished on us. What mercy you have offered us. Would you help us, Lord, to see with your eyes the true story of the whole world. And may we rejoice in the victory that our King Jesus has won. We give you glory. We give you praise, Father. We we give you that in the only name that is above every name. And that is the name of your Son, Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. And all God's people said, amen.